0: Well, good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Everyone's good, smiley, happy, ready to get into God's word. Uh, it is an absolute delight to be worshiping our risen and come King Jesus Christ and uh, It's a delight now to open up his word and by the power of his spirit working through his word and in our hearts uh, coming now that God might help us to know him more and to love him more, to trust him more, and to enjoy him more. Uh, Over the past two weeks, we have been falling into the Psalms as a church family. We've been seeing what it looks like to be men and women of faith. Uh, Now as we step into December, happy December by the way, uh, as we step in we're turning a little bit of a corner and we're going to begin to experience together as a church family Christmas in the Psalms. Now as we get started in this new series I think it's important that we note uh, this is not a traditional Christmas series. Uh, In fact when you come to the Psalms it's completely absent of explicit images that we typically associate with the Christmas season. So as we go through here and look at these various passages in these various Psalms, uh, we're not going to see things that we're familiar with during this time of year. There's not going to be a nativity scene. There won't be a guiding star or angels visiting shepherds in a field. Uh, baby Jesus is not even in the Psalms. But think for a moment, what the Psalms are. Uh, The Psalms are about men and women of faith, people who love the Lord, walking with the Lord, and going through real life with their God. The Psalms are filled with all kinds of questions, questions that you and I often ask. Uh, Questions like as we see life happening and going on around us, we might ask, uh, God, where are you? Uh, I know you've promised me in your word that you'll never leave me nor forsake me, but right now in this season of my life, where I'm at, what I'm experiencing, uh, God, where are you? Questions like as we look around and just consider our lives or consider the world around us and ask questions like, uh, God, why is it that the wicked seem to prosper? Or perhaps for you, maybe during this season or this season of your life, uh, you might be asking the question, How long, O oh Lord? If it's a season of suffering or trial or uh, you've just learned something that's going on in your life and you're beginning to ask this question, God, how much longer, how much longer do I have to continue to feel like this? How long will I have to continue to suffer? How long, God, will it be until you come and rescue me from this situation? The questions that the psalmists ask are the same questions that we ask today. The psalms then are filled with hope and with despair. They're filled with great rejoicing and with great sorrow. They're filled with times of celebration and times of lamentation. They're filled with cries of help in the present and longings for the future. Now, some of the Psalms consider circumstances, while others of the Psalms are more concerning themselves with what's going on in the soul and sometimes what's going on in the soul based on the circumstances that are going on around us. Some of the psalms look back on events of the past while others are desperate pleadings here now in the present and still others are longings for the future, hopeful visions of what's to come. Many of the psalms have all of these themes or some of them wrapped up together. Uh, I love the way that one Old Testament scholar summarizes what's going on in the psalms. He says this, uh, in the psalms, Yahweh reigns supreme ...over all creation. From the placement of galaxies... ...to the growth of grass. From sea breezes... ...to the flights of birds. From the establishment of nations... ...to the last breath of individuals. Yahweh is always faithful and just. Yahweh guides through his instruction. He responds to the pleas and laments... ...of the righteous. And Yahweh will faithfully vindicate... ...those who seek refuge in him... Under the rule of his Messiah. His sovereignty over all demands praise, for he is the guide, satisfier, judge, sovereign, treasure, creator, keeper, architect, overseer, provider, supreme one, great king, and God over all. Uh, In short, The Psalms are about God, God who reigns supreme over all, God who is glorified by saving and satisfying all of those who would seek refuge in him under the rule of his Messiah, under the rule of Jesus Christ. So the Psalms are for every season, especially for the Christmas season. What the Psalms do is they help us to lift our eyes from six feet off the ground. They help us to lift our eyes from just the circumstances that are going on around us that are bombarding us and barraging us all day, every day. And they help us to fix our eyes on Almighty God and help us understand what it is to walk through this life in every season with our God. Christmas is also a season of great anticipation. Uh, Growing up for me Christmas was a really big deal in our house. I'm not talking like big deal I'm talking like obnoxiously big deal Uh, so much so in fact That when I got out of the house and I was trying to figure out how to temper what in the world I experienced growing up uh, I drafted a manifesto called Christmas is canceled and uh I was getting ready to send it out to my entire family until my loving and wise wife said honey I don't think that's a really good idea uh, I am really thankful for the woman that God has blessed me with uh, I remember though the anticipation growing up uh, My brother and I, he's, his name's Jesse, he's only 15 months older than I am uh, We knew exactly where my, present, or where my parents would hide all of our presents And uh, parents, your kids know as well So the night before Christmas Eve, uh, here was a little tradition that Jesse and I had that I'm confident our parents probably knew about. Uh, We would go under the stairs to where we knew all of the wrapped presents were hiding, and we had several objectives for this mission, okay? Uh, The first and most important objective, of course, was to go and count the presents and ensure that we each had an equal number of presents, (laughs) okay? Okay? Uh, Then after that, we would kind of go through our Christmas list mentally, and uh, we would make sure that our list of demands was met. We would size up the boxes and like, yeah, I think that's that, and I think that's that. Uh, And then the last thing, of course, that we would do is we would pick up every single box, and we would shake it vigorously to find out exactly how many Legos we would be opening on Christmas morning. Uh, The anticipation for Jesse and I was far too much. We could not wait, and so we had to find out. Uh, Christmas is a season of anticipation, not just for little kids who are hoping to get some sort of present, but a season of anticipation for people of all stages. Uh, People look forward to time with loved ones during this year. Uh, People look forward to time off of school or perhaps rest from work. Uh, Maybe people are looking forward to a gift that they're going to receive. And of course, we long to celebrate the coming of our King, Jesus Christ. The psalms that we're going to look at during this series, Christmas in the Psalms, I think are only going to continue to feed that anticipation of this season. See, Christmas in the Psalms is about considering who God is. It's about marveling that our great God would come and live amongst us. It's about rejoicing in the great salvation that he has brought to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's about exalting him for who he is And for all, he's done. So we wanted to take this December. We wanted to take this Christmas season together as a family, a church family, and rejoice and celebrate who the Lord is. To take a month together and to say, God, you are good, you are glorious, you are worthy. And in that, we celebrate and rejoice. Our God who has come and who is coming again. And so, with joy and celebration and rejoicing on our minds, it makes perfect sense that we would start this series by going to Psalm chapter 14, which has been categorized as a community lament. Uh, A lament, for those who uh, don't know, is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. What's going on in Psalm 14 is the people of God are looking at the world around them and they're mourning that people, mankind, generally does not seek after God. And because they don't seek after God, it leads them into unspeakable evil. And so what I want us to see this morning at the beginning of this series is how our great God can take us from sorrow and can lead us into inexpressible joy. So if you haven't turned there yet, it's Psalm chapter 14. It's on page 453 in the Bibles that are in the seats in front of you. And we'll read it together, all seven verses. Psalm chapter 14, starting in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God they have all turned aside together they have become corrupt there is none who does good not even one have they no knowledge all the evil doers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the lord there they are in great terror for god is with the generation of the righteous you would shame the plans of the poor but the lord is his refuge Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. And so, Father, I pray as we look at this psalm that you would do this work in our hearts through your word of helping us to come out of great sorrow and into great joy. In Christ's name and for Christ's sake, amen. Psalm chapter 14 is split up into two stanzas. The first stanza, verses 1 through 3, and the second, verses 4 through 7. So let's take this one stanza at a time, starting in verse 1. Verse 1 begins by exclaiming, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Uh, This thought, this belief that there is no God, is at the very bottom of all folly. Uh, In the book of Proverbs, a book in Scripture that's devoted to proclaiming what wisdom is, it begins in chapter 1, verse 7, by saying, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear of the Lord in the Scriptures means to live as though God is, to have a tremendous amount of love and respect and a great desire to want to please the Lord, knowing and understanding that we're accountable to the Lord. So then, to say that there is no God implicitly and instantly excludes an individual from even beginning to grow towards wisdom and knowledge. Now David is writing this psalm, Psalm chapter 14, and he's writing it in an ancient Near Eastern context. And so we have to understand what that means because there really was no such thing as atheism as we understand it today. So when he says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, it's not an outright rejection of the existence of God or gods. Instead, it's a practical atheism. It's the assertion that God, if he exists and whatever he might be like, he is not an active presence in the world and he doesn't concern himself with the affairs or the doings of man. He doesn't bother himself with what we humans are doing here on the earth and we will not give an account to him. It's the basic assumption that the God, God, whatever he is like and whatever he is up to, does not care about humans and how we conduct our lives. This is what the fool believes in their heart. The verse continues to say, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Brothers and sisters, this is the way that life works. This is the way that God created us and designed us. All of our life begins in the heart, and then it begins to move outwardly into our actions, into our thoughts, into our words. Uh, Because the heart and the mind is believing that there is no God, the result then is a life filled with corruption, abominable deeds, And it is completely absent and devoid of anything good. This is exactly what Romans chapter 1 teaches us. You can hold your place here in Psalm 14 and turn there with me. Uh, Romans chapter 1 on page 939 in the Bibles in front of you. And this is exactly what Paul is teaching. He's just echoing or teaching more on what David is saying here in Psalm chapter 14. So Romans 1, starting in verse 18 It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth about who God is, that he does in fact exist. And in their unrighteousness, they shut God out. They cast the idea of God aside. They utterly reject God. Verses 19 and 20 continue, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are completely without excuse. Although it is clear to all mankind that God does in fact exist and that God is intimately involved in the lives of individuals, they reject the Lord. And verse 21 goes on to say, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And hear this, their foolish hearts were darkened Verse 22, claiming to be fools, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Because of their futile thinking, their hearts were darkened. Because of their weak and impotent thinking, because of their rejection and suppression of the Lord, because they exclaim in their heart, there is no God. Verse 28 tells us exactly what happens. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1 expresses it. Romans chapter 1 teaches it. Folly begins in the heart with wrong assumptions about who God is. So the fool in scripture then is not the unintelligent one. The fool in scripture is the one who lives their life based on faulty assumptions. So when we read this verse in Psalm chapter 14, verse one, we might be thinking in our hearts and saying in our minds, well, it's not talking about me because I'm not an atheist. I do believe God exists. But when we understand that this is not talking about an atheism that's theoretical, it's talking about a practical atheism, it gives us pause to consider for just a moment. Questions like this, Uh, do I really live as though God exists and as though he is aware of my every thought, my every word, my every action? Do I live as though God is in fact the living God who is intimately involved in every single circumstance in my life? What about this last week as you reflect on it and consider? Uh, Did I live like God exists How did that change the way that I spoke, the words that I said or did not say? How did that change the way that I thought? How did that change the things I did or did not do? What about looking forward to this Christmas season? Uh, What would it look like to do this season believing that there is, in fact, a God? How will that impact the way that I finish my semester of school? How will that impact the way that I spend time with family during this season? How will that impact the way that I use my time? How will it impact the way that I do everything during this time? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so his life is filled with corruption and abominable deeds. By contrast, then, we could say that the wise man says in his heart, there is a God, a God who sees, a God who cares and a God who is intimately involved in my life. And then out of the abundance of that heart would flow godliness and righteous deeds. While the fool says in his heart, there is no God, we who are wise by God's grace might say, God, you do exist. And oh God, by your grace, help me to please you and to walk with you. Look at what verse two does. Verse two is an immediate correction to the fool. Verse two says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. While the fool is exclaiming in their heart, there is no God, the reality is that there is a God. He's in the heavens and he's looking down and sees everything that is happening in us and amongst us. And this God, he doesn't just see so that he can sit back passively and watch what's happening. He doesn't just sit back and say, oh, well, that's interesting. No, 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 no. He sees so that he might act. He sees, he looks on what's going on in our hearts so that he might get involved in our lives and in our world. And so as he's looking to see what's going on in the hearts of man, what does he find? Verse three, he finds that they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. That there is none who does good, not even one. Not even one. In the historical context of this psalm, uh, this verse is describing the nations that are surrounding the people of God. Because they reject a true understanding of the Lord, because they reject a relationship with the Lord, there is not one of them who does good. So then apart from rightly knowing the Lord and relating rightly with the Lord, it is completely impossible for any of us to be good and to do good. And this is exactly, again, what Paul picks up in Romans chapter three as we've been reading these verses this morning. Perhaps you've been thinking to yourself, hey, these verses sound really familiar. Uh, That's because Paul quotes them in Romans chapter three. So go ahead and flip there with me real fast. Uh, In Romans chapter three, and we're gonna begin in verse nine and read through 18. Romans chapter three. Beginning at the end of verse 9, going through verse 18, it says this For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. Hear this, verse 18. There is no fear of God. Before their eyes. Back to Psalm 14. David is describing the nations around the people of God saying that they don't seek after God. Paul then takes this verse, this passage, and he applies it to all mankind in Romans chapter 3 to both Jews and Greeks. So we learn that because of our sin, our natural disposition is to hate God to reject God, to suppress God, to cast God out and live as if there is no God. Psalm 14 verse 3 says, they have all turned aside, that all people have turned away from God. I think most oftentimes when we consider this reality of turning away from God, uh, we think turning away towards self-indulgence. The idea that if I reject the existence of God, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it, however I want to do it. And what we do is we fool ourselves into believing that slavery to sin is true freedom. But others, and perhaps more dangerously, don't turn aside towards self-indulgence, but instead turn aside towards self-righteousness, believing in their hearts and thinking in their minds, I don't need anyone or anything else to help me be good. I can do it all on my own. I can work harder, I can do better, I can try more, and I can outweigh my mistakes. And when you hear the word mistakes, actually here, sins against an infinitely holy God, I can outweigh those by doing enough good, which when you hear that, instead here, deeds and thoughts that are wrapped up in just total self and pride because I think that I can do it all on my own. Oh, how crazy, crazy broken our hearts are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. We turn aside towards self-righteousness or towards self-indulgence. And so this indictment that there is no one who does good, not even one, this declaration of our corruption and complete failure to do good is true of every single man and every single woman apart from the work of the Lord. So as the first stanza of this psalm wraps up, The condition of man apart from God is clearly developed. On my own, I never would have sought after God. On my own, I never would have sought after God. And so, Father, this morning we recognize our complete helplessness apart from your grace. We are utterly and completely dependent upon your working in our hearts. In Christ's name. So here we are, one stanza through, and you're thinking to yourself, yes, this is rejoicing and celebration and joy and jubilee in Christmas in the Psalms. Uh, Cody, you have the gift of encouragement, thank you. Uh, Stay with me, stay with me, because I think that verses four and five at the beginning of the second stanza begin to transition us out of the pit. Uh, Look at verses four and five with me. It says, have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Psalm 14, although the peoples of the nations around the people of God are foolish and corrupt, and Romans 3, although you and I, apart from the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and our own sinful nature, are corrupt as they are, this psalm proclaims that God is with the generation of the righteous. Brothers and sisters, verse 5 is Christmas. Far from verse 1, where we're proclaiming that there is no God, Verse 5 declares that there is a God, and this God is with his people. Isaiah 7:14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. Yes. God was with his people throughout redemptive history and his presence was manifested to them in many and various ways, sometimes in a pillar of cloud, sometimes in a pillar of fire, other times in a great storm on the top of a mountain. But never before, never before Christmas had God taken on human flesh and come to dwell amongst us as a person. God does not just look down from the heavens on the children of man, verses 1 and 2, But no, instead, he comes and he seeks after them. He doesn't just sit back and say, oh, well, I guess there aren't any who are doing good. He doesn't just sit back and say, oh, I can't wait to squash them or stomp them out and destroy them. No, he seeks after those who never would have sought after him. God becomes Emmanuel and he invites foolish and corrupt sinners into fellowship with him. Verse five says that he is with the generation of the righteous, but the righteous only exist because of Jesus. Righteousness is only possible because of the Messiah. Their righteousness can only be found in Emmanuel. This is Romans 3, 21 and 26. You have it on the screen here. You don't have to turn this time. It says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are only justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a substitute, as a sacrifice in our place to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That's gonna be really important in a minute. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus. Righteousness of God has only ever come through faith in Jesus Christ. That is true for us here now on this side of the cross. And it was true for every believer before Jesus came and before the cross. It was true for David in Psalm chapter 14. Romans 3.25 said that in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Here's what that means. It means that every sin ever committed before God came to be, before God came to be with us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, it was passed over. Not overlooked as if it were ignored, but it were almost added to an ever-increasing account. It was like continually adding water to a giant reservoir and sin piled on top of sin, piled on top of sin, growing higher and higher and higher and more and more weighty. And then Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, comes, lives a perfect life. He's condemned in the place of sinners. He's put on the cross and bears the full weight of all sin. It's like a dam that was holding back that reservoir is released and the Lord Jesus Christ absorbs all of it. So there can be no such thing as a righteous people, as a righteous generation in verse 5, except by the precious work of Jesus Christ. It's only because of the righteousness of Emmanuel, because of the life of Emmanuel, and because of the sacrifice of Emmanuel. So it is no wonder that verse 6 continues and says, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. The Lord is the refuge of the poor and needy and dependent one. The Lord is the refuge of those who are poor in spirit and recognize that apart from God's work in their life, they cannot be good or do good. He is the refuge for the sinner that turns from his sin and trusts in Emmanuel for his salvation. He is the refuge for his people that are constantly assailed by the ungodly who hate God and who hate his people. In Psalm chapter 14, David looks around at the world and he laments with his people that mankind generally hates God and wants to destroy God and his people. Sinful mankind wants to wipe God out and wants to rid the world of his people. But... God is with the generation of the righteous. God is a refuge for his people. And so verse 7, David proclaims and he cries out and says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. This is what the godly of every age have longed for. For the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of the King, to come and establish his righteousness and his justice. For God to finally and fully establish his kingdom and to pour out a great salvation on all his people. Here we sit living in the days far beyond Psalm chapter 14. And we know that salvation has indeed come in the person of Jesus. Salvation has come in Emmanuel, in God with us, in Jesus coming as a baby, living amongst us and dying for us. And so we who have turned from our sins and have trusted in Jesus for our salvation, we have been rescued from the folly of verse one. We've been rescued from the corruption that the folly brings. We've been rescued from the impending wrath of God. Verse 7 concludes this psalm by saying, When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let them be glad. Brothers and sisters, we need verses 1 through 3 so that we can understand why this call for salvation is such a call for celebration. Why it's such a cause for great rejoicing. Verses 1 through 3 make verses four through seven that much more glorious. We have so much to rejoice in and to be glad about. Salvation has come in Emmanuel. It has come in Jesus the Messiah. And just like David and the people of Psalm chapter 14, our cry is still the same. Our cry is still, oh, that salvation would come. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. The anticipation that we contrive every Christmas, and it's almost like we're really expecting baby Jesus to come every December 25th, we can actually bend that anticipation into really longing for Jesus, for Emmanuel to come again and to rescue us and to fully and finally save us. Make no mistake about it when the Lord comes, we will rejoice. Oh, we have much to rejoice and be glad about now, but on that day, our rejoicing is going to be explosive because God himself will come and declare, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and Emmanuel will come again and it will be God actually with us forever. Stanza one shows that on my own, I never would have sought after God. But as stanza two concludes, we see God sought me as Emmanuel. I never would have sought after the Lord on my own, so God, looking down on the children of man, seeing that there's none who seeks after him, sends Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, to come and seek and save those who are lost. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And so it's Christmas. It's Christmas time. And as we enter this series and as we begin to work our way through it here this December, I invite us as a church family to consider taking three actions. This Christmas for us as a church is a time for these three. First, let us recenter our lives. As we step into this season, let us recenter our lives. Let us think rightly about God. Let us think and believe according to wisdom. Let us live as though there is a God, the God of the Bible who is actively engaged in every single one of our lives, that's actively engaged in our church and that is actively engaged in our world. And let us draw near to him with great love and great respect, fearing the Lord and desiring to please him. Let us live our lives before his face. And as we do that, would we listen to him in his word and would we cry out to him in prayer? Would we think and speak and do as though God is and as though God is the most important relationship in our lives and not just a cute tag-on for all of the holiday cards this season? First, let us recenter our lives. Second, let us remember our salvation. Uh, Baby Jesus came For a purpose. He came to rescue mankind from their sin. He came when we were once foolish, corrupt, and failing to do good. He came so that he might buy us back by his blood, by the blood of Emmanuel. We then have been justified by faith, and we have peace with God because of Emmanuel, because of God with us, if we have in fact turned from our sins and trusted in him. So let us remember our salvation. And finally, let us rejoice in our coming and certain future. Let us rejoice in our certain future. God with us will not just be something that we reflect on during Christmas time. God with us will be our everyday, every moment reality. And all else, all the pleasure and all the pain of this life will pale in comparison to being with God for eternity. So this morning, as we begin to do all three of these things together as a church family, uh, I think it would be fitting for us to end our time together in communion. And so if the communion servers would want to get in place and the worship team would come up, uh, we'll begin to do all three of these things together. Uh, Here's what's happening in communion. Uh, communion is a recentering of our lives. What we do in communion is we understand that it's communing with God. It's actually uh, having community, having relationship with the Lord. What the Psalms do is they help us to lift our eyes from six feet off the ground, and communion also helps us to recenter our lives and invites us to pause and to consider who God is and all that God has done. Communion is also effective in helping us to remember our great salvation. For communion pictures the gospel. Communion pictures the good news of Jesus Christ. It reminds us of a body, a body, Emmanuel, coming in the flesh that was broken for us and of the shed blood of Emmanuel. It reminds us that we never would have sought after God, so God had to do it all and come and seek after us. Finally, communion points us forward. It points us forward, as in First Corinthians eleven twenty-six, it says, For as often as you do this, as often as you eat and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So communion then is a time for somber feelings of looking back and remembering the salvation that was wrought for us in the work of Christ because of our sinfulness. And it's also a time of great rejoicing and considering that this Jesus who came to save us from our sin will come and save us from this present generation. The gospel changes everything. The good news of Jesus Christ that he came to live and die and rise again for sinners changes everything.